0: This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library dash channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire
1: you to read, write, think, and dream.
2: Good morning. I'm Linda Claussen, Director of Special Collections and Archives at the UC San Diego Library, where the Leo Zelard papers are housed all 115 boxes of them. Um, I'm also the chair of the program committee for the UCSD Faculty Club, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. So Bill Lanwet is a writer and public policy analyst who has written about the intersection of science and politics for more than three decades. His articles and essays on nuclear weapons and nuclear power can be found in the Atlantic Monthly, The Economist, Scientific America, and numerous other publications. He was the Washington correspondent for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and from 1991 to 2006, he served as a senior analyst for energy and science issues at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the investigative arm of Congress. Maybe I'm not the only reason who thinks that government and accountability might be oxymoronic, but we'll carry on. Um, The reason we're here today is because Bill is the author of Genius in the Shadows, a biography of Leo Zillard, The Man Behind the Bomb, first published in 1992. And revised and updated version came out in the fall of 2013, and both (coughs) versions are available from the bookstore today. Much of Bill's research was done here at UC San Diego in special collections because of the library's collection of Zillard's personal archive. The Zillard papers were the first collection that I acquired for the library after I came here, and Bill was certainly one of the first heavy-duty researchers to grace our reading room all those years ago. His interest in Zillard hasn't waned, and he contributed to our recent successful proposal for federal funding to digitize the entire Zillard archive, a project that the library is beginning this month and that we plan to complete in two years. Bill has now left Washington and resides here in San Diego, and he continues to be a welcome presence in Special Collections and Archives. So please welcome Bill Landwet.
1: Thank you very much, Linda. I want to thank uh, Tom and the faculty club staff, the uh, bookstore crew, Helen Weiss, who is here, Leo Szilard's niece, a UCSD uh, grad school alumna who produced a NOVA program about Szilard in 1992. And I'd like to thank my wife, Joanne, who has supported and encouraged me throughout my three Decades with Leo Szilard. <laughs> now, to the question at hand. Well, how do you pronounce Szilard? <laughs> in Hungarian, S is SH, as in Budapest. SZ is S, as in Franz Liszt. And I is E. Leo is pronounced Leo and Szilard Szilard. But to make things even harder, like the Chinese, the Hungarians, put the family name first. So in Budapest, he is Szilard Leo. However, since German was his family's first language, he sometimes called himself just Leo Szilard or Zillard, close to what I do with his name. He lived 13 years in Germany and another five in England. And that changed his pronunciation. He even adopted the English way of beginning a phone call. Hello, Szilard here. The FBI mangled poor Leo's name. Sometimes he was Leo Spitz, his family name until he was two. Sometimes Zillard, SZ throws a lot of people. And over the years, I've heard Zillard, Zeland, Sizzlard, and even Lizard. As a kid growing up, I thought Lanouette was tough. (laughs) Why is he the man behind the bomb? Well, Szilard was behind it in in two ways. First, he did more than anyone to try to create the A-bomb before the Nazi scientists did. Second, during and after the war, he did as much as he could and as much as anyone to try to stop the bomb he had helped to create. Indeed, as you'll see, Leo lived both sides of the nuclear arms race, first trying to forestall, then to hasten, and then finally to abolish and outlaw nuclear weapons. Today, I'll share some highlights of his life, concluding with his time here in San Diego. What did Szilard's friends and colleagues think of him? To them, he was quirky, infuriating, and inspiring, often all at once. And to this biographer, Szilard was puzzling and profound. He was a contrarian and a provocateur in both science and politics. His sister-in-law, Francie Racker, said Leo was not a person, he was a phenomenon. And his friend Hans Bethe, a Nobel laureate in physics who discovered how the sun works, said of Szilard, he was one of the most intelligent people I have ever known. His mind worked quickly and profoundly, and he was able to come to ideas that most of us appreciated only after many hours of talk. This was his strength and, of course, also his weakness. His ideas, he was always ahead of his time. His ideas often were expressed in paradoxes, and the paradoxes were not always understood. Szilard's need since childhood was to be different and even disruptive, and these he played out in both science and politics. I think it kept him from gaining the support that institutions might have otherwise given him. Regrettably, Szilard's whole creative style led him to the forefront of science, but sometimes left him by the wayside of society. Though not a mad scientist, Leo Szilard could be maddening. The more I learned about Leo, the more I felt sorry for him. He had such an intense moral conviction, but sometimes a too strong trust in the powers of reason. Einstein used to chide him about that. All his life, he sought to create more and more ways to make this world a better and safer and more livable place. But he could be his own worst enemy, sometimes not even knowing when he was serious and when he was kidding. Szilard wrote political satires, including My Trial as a War Criminal and The Voice of the Dolphins. He wrote delightful children's stories and clever science fiction. He even composed his own Ten Commandments. Solard bragged that his favorite hobby was baiting brass hats, and that set him in constant conflict with General Leslie Groves, the military head of the Manhattan Project. In fact, Groves came to despise Solard so much, he tried to have him jailed during World War II, and afterward, he even tried to discredit his scientific work by writing to encyclopedia editors and saying that they should reduce or delete their entries on Leo Solard. Solard was an intellectual bumblebee, said the Nobel laureate François Jacob. As Jonas Salk said, Leo cared not to carry the torch, but simply to light it. And when there were not others to carry, he did so himself. Here are some highlights from an amazing life. Leo Szilard was born February eleventh, eighteen 1898, to a middle-class assimilated Jewish family in Budapest. Until high school, he was tutored at home, which gave him a real sense of freedom and independent thinking. Bright and precocious from an early age, he grew up thinking he had to save the world himself. Solard was an artillery cadet in World War I, and before and after the war, he studied engineering in Budapest. Solard was fascinated by politics and economics. Even tried to do his second PhD in economics. During the Bela Kuhn Hungarian Soviet Republic in 1919, Leo and his brother Bela organized a Hungarian Socialist Students Association to try to mediate between the communists and the monarchists. But when the fascist Horti regime took power later that year, the Solard brothers were suspected of being communists and were followed. Constantly by the secret police. Horty's regime barred Jews from studying in the universities, so the Sillard brothers declared themselves to be Calvinists, but they were still excluded. Leo wanted to study in Berlin, but was denied an exit visa because of his political activities. And then finally, in December 1919, his father bribed officials for a visa. Still, to elude the secret police at the train stations, he escaped from Hungary by hopping an excursion steamer up the Danube to Vienna. Arriving in Berlin at age 22, Szilard abandoned engineering for physics, but he was undaunted by the many Nobel laureates he encountered at the regular colloquia. To register for a course by Max Planck, who had originated quantum theory in physics, Szilard first has to, had to meet with the professor. He announced to Planck, I only want to learn the facts of physics. I will make up the theories myself. <laughs> At a weekly physics colloquium, Szilard introduced himself to Albert Einstein, took to walking him home to their neighborhood afterwards, and the two struck up a friendship. Szilard even persuaded Einstein to teach statistical mechanics to a few friends from Budapest. Who were these friends from Budapest? Well, they included John von Neumann, father of modern game theory and computers, and two future Nobel laureates in physics, Eugene Wigner and Dennis Gabor. During the Manhattan Project, von Neumann, Wigner Szilard, and Edward Teller were known as the Martians, all from Budapest, because, of course, they were superhumanly intelligent and spoke an unearthly language. Szilard's <laughs> doctoral thesis applied the concept of entropy to information, a field which in the 50s became known as cybernetics or information Theory And Szilard was constantly inventing things. In the 1920s, he brainstormed with Gabor on the idea of an electron microscope. But they gave it up, thinking, well, the electrons would probably disintegrate the sample, not realizing that they could, in fact, with a disintegrated sample, learn just as much about it. He also proposed a linear particle accelerator in the late 20s, And years before E.O. Lawrence built one at Berkeley, Solar designed a cyclotron. It's about this big, and there's a model of it in the Smithsonian in Washington. With Einstein in the 20s, he co-designed a refrigerator with no moving parts. Einstein had read in the newspaper that a family had been asphyxiated by gas escaping from a refrigerator, and so they wanted to design a refrigerator that couldn't leak and didn't have seals and pumps. And what they created was an electromagnetic pump, magnets that moved a liquid metal coolant through the pipes. Now this became much too noisy for kitchens. When Siemens built it, they said it howled like a banshee, and so it was no good in a household. But it did later cool the nuclear breeder reactor with liquid metal coolants in the 1950s. The nuclear breeder reactor, by the way, is something that Szilard thought up in the 1940s and also named. Soon after Hitler took power in the spring of 1933, Szilard fled Germany and thereafter always vowed to keep two bags packed and standing by the door. He escaped the end of March. And the next day, the trains were stopped, and Jews were searched, and their goods were confiscated. And as he said later, to be successful in life, you don't have to be much cleverer. You just have to be one day early. <laughs> after he took power in the spring of '33, after Hitler took power, Szilard fled, to Nazi, fled Nazi Germany and settled in London where he helped found the Academic Assistance Council to find jobs for all the refugee scholars coming from Italy and from Germany. Solard always lived in hotels or faculty clubs and kept his files in suitcases. When I began using his papers here in 1983, before they were formally donated to UCSD and cataloged, they were organized by the color of the suitcase they came from. In London, in the fall of 1933, Szilard wanted to take up biology. He even applied for a job at the University of London. But then, that September, he read about a speech by Ernest Rutherford, who said, anyone who thinks they can gain effective power from the atom is talking moonshine. Well, Solar didn't know what moonshine was, but he found out. And he always believed an expert is somebody who tells you what can't be done. And so he started thinking, and within a couple of weeks, he came up with two concepts that really changed the world, and the two for which he is best remembered. One is the nuclear chain reaction, and the other is the critical mass needed to start and to sustain it. Immediately, he thought, H.G. Wells. Here we come. Why? Well, in 1929, he had actually met Wells, and he read Wells' 1913 novel, The World Set Free, which predicts an atomic war across the world in 1956. So from 1913 comes a novel that Szilard reads in 1932 that projects him and Wells forward to fears of a nuclear war. He immediately saw this was a way to generate electricity, but also to make atomic bombs. He took his idea to General Electric in England. They thought nothing of it. He took it to the army. They thought nothing of it. Finally, he had the admiralty make it a secret, lest German scientists uh, see the military potential. And that patent is something that uh, has... I think really distinguished him in, in, in science uh, history uh, as a, a true breakthrough and a true insight. For the next four years in London, Oxford, and with occasional trips to New York, Szilard searched constantly for an element that would produce a chain reaction. He was always politically astute and vowed to move to the US a year before the war. So in 1938, he sailed for New York. There at Columbia University he met the Nobel laureate Enrico Fermi and that summer the two of them designed the world's first nuclear reactor. That summer Solard also went to Einstein and told him about chain reactions. Einstein's response, "I haven't thought of that at all." And he hadn't because in fact he was in a much more theoretical plane. Next Solard proposed and drafted for Einstein a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt warning about German A-bomb work and urging an American response. This famous letter, and you can see drafts of it in Szilard's hand over in the library, led eventually to the U.S. Army's Manhattan Project that created the first controlled nuclear chain reaction in 1942 and the first A-bombs in 1945. After their reactor first worked, Fermi was elated, but Szilard was not. He shook hands with Fermi, and he said, this will go down as a black day in the history of mankind. During World War II, Szilard worked eagerly to build the A-bomb, but then became ambivalent about it and started worrying about post-war international control. In 1944, he thought A-bombs should be used on cities in order to shock the world into accepting a post-war international accord to control all atomic energy. But by early 1945, with Germany clearly defeated, Solar tried four ways to prevent using the bomb on Japan and to create an international control scheme. He hoped at that point, perhaps through the new UN, which was just being set up in 1945. First in March, he had Einstein send another letter, now his fourth, to Roosevelt, urging the president to meet with Szilard and to talk about post-war control of this new weapon. But FDR died in April, never seeing the letter. After the war, Einstein said his only role in the A-bomb's development was as Leo Szilard's mailbox. (laughs) Second, in May 1945, Szilard took Einstein's letter to the Truman White House and was sent off to Spartanburg, South Carolina, to meet James F. Burns. Szilard took along another Manhattan Project scientist who then opposed the bomb, the Nobel laureate Harold Urey, and Urey's papers are here also. With a Hollywood screenwriter, Peter Cook, I've written a play about that encounter titled Uranium Plus Peaches. We've had several staged dramatic readings, including three in Hollywood, with Ed Asner as a terrific Leo, and we hope to film the play as a one hour TV drama in Burns's actual house. Burns was then Truman's representative on the secret interim committee deciding how to use the bomb. and. He was about to be named Secretary of State. Burns had been at Yalta with FDR and was concerned about Soviet advances after the war. And so he told Szilard that he was eager to use the bomb as soon as it was ready in order to make the Russians, as he said, more manageable after the war. I was rarely as depressed as when we left Burns's house and walked toward the station soard recalled i thought to myself how much better off the world might be if i had been if might be had i been born in america and become influential in american politics and had burns been born in hungary and studied physics In all probability, there would have been no atomic bomb and no danger of an arms race between America and Russia. Back in Chicago in June of 1945, he tried to stop the bomb by drafting the Franck Committee report by Chicago's Manhattan Project scientists. This urged the Secretary of War to demonstrate the bomb before it was used on cities. And finally, in July of 1945, days before the A-bomb was first tested, Solard tried a final, desperate way to stop it. He drafted and circulated a petition to the President, urging moral consideration before using the bomb on cities, and advocating international control for this new and awesome weapon. In all, 155 Manhattan Project scientists signed that petition. The Army was suspicious, and so they conducted a poll, and they found 83% of the project scientists favored a demonstration before military use. When Hiroshima was bombed, Szilard said he felt a sense of relief. Why? At last, he could discuss the A bomb publicly, he could educate the public. But when he tried to publish his petition in Science Magazine, his nemesis, General Groves, had it classified secret. And it wasn't declassified and published until 1963, the year before Szilard's death. After World War II, Szilard said, the most powerful weapon to come from the Manhattan Project was not the A-bomb, it was the secret stamp. After the war, Szilard wrote to the nuclear pioneer Niels Bohr, Theoretically, I'm supposed to divide my time between finding what life is and trying to preserve it by saving the world. At present, the world seems to me beyond saving, and that leaves me more time free for biology. But Szilard never abandoned hope. In arms control, he schemed to open back channels, contacts with U.S. and Soviet scientists. Beginning in 1957, he was a leading participant in the Pugwash Conferences on Science and World Affairs, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1995 on the 50th anniversary of Hiroshima. Solard also maintained hope when diagnosed with bladder cancer and in 1960 devised his own radiation therapy to eradicate it. Also in 1960, during a private two-hour meeting in New York, with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, Solard got him to agree to the idea of a Moscow-Washington hotline. Aiming to bring the sweet voice of reason to the new Kennedy administration, Solard moved to a hotel near the White House to lobby the President and the Congress on arms control. And in 1962, he founded the first political action committee in this country for arms control. The Council for a Livable World, which thrives today, has helped to elect more than 100 candidates to the Senate and more than 200 candidates to the House who favor arms control and disarmament. The Council's Chairman, Ira Lechner from Escondido, is with us today, and I hope that uh, you can uh, say hello to him if uh, you have the time. In biology, Szilard was always that intellectual bumblebee among the founders of molecular biology, but too impatient to share discoveries through peer-reviewed journals. He just convened the best minds in monthly dinners and brainstormed with them, saving, he said, months and months for sharing new ideas. He was first to devise a way to clone living mammalian cells, and he saw that enzymes control their growth by an on-off process called negative feedback. This insight gained others the Nobel Prize, for which they credited Szilard in their speeches in Stockholm. Szilard's studies of cancer and aging and memory are praised today for their early insights. And ever the contrarian, he also proposed that scientists be limited Once they get a Ph.D., they are only allowed in their career to publish 100 papers. (laughs) That would force them to decide which ideas are truly important. He loved creating new institutions, and with the Nobel laureates John Kendrew and Max Perutz, he created the European Molecular Biology Organization, modeled on CERN, the Nuclear Studies Center in Geneva. EMBO now thrives in Heidelberg, Germany, and its library is named for Leo Szilard. Well, how did Leo find his way here to San Diego? He first came in 1957 to consult on novel ideas for nuclear reactor designs at General Atomics. Clearly, he loved the weather, spent little time in GA's offices, but instead worked outdoors at his hotel, jotting on a notepad. Just being here was a delight, and he returned the next summer. G.A. was founded by Manhattan Project physicist Frederick de Hoffman and Szilard was invited here by Edward Kreutz, a physicist he had worked with on the Manhattan Project in Chicago. In January 1957, Szilard met Jonas Salk during a biology conference at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, and there he proposed founding a research center that blends two things, hard science and the study of the social consequences. From hard science. At first, Szilard, Salk demurred, but Sillard persisted. He enlisted several US and English scientists in his scheme and urged Salk to at least become an affiliate member of this new institution. <clears throat> now, Salk wanted to open a study center in Pittsburgh where he had conducted his poliovirus research. Sillard insisted no first class scientist would want to move to Pittsburgh. Then he conspired with colleagues to locate the institute in La Jolla near the new UCSD campus and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Working with Roger Ravel and others, Szilard urged, even cajoled Salk, to locate his new institute here. It helped that San Diego's mayor offered the land for free. Szilard's legacy at UCSD includes the leadership exemplified by his friend Herb York, both as the first chancellor and founder of the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, truly an organization with Szilardian ideals. Szilard's widow, Trudy, worked here to publish three volumes of his papers, and York received the annual Leo Szilard Award from the American Physical Society, given to scientists who combine their research with social concerns. Other recipients have included Hans Bethe, Andrei Sakharov, Sidney Drell, and Wolfgang Panofsky. It's exciting that Szilard's papers will soon be digitized and available on the Internet worldwide, but for future scholars, there's also a downside. They won't have the excuse of coming here for their research. (laughs) The Szilards moved here from Washington, D.C., in January 1964... As Trudy recalled, we stayed in the best suite at La Valencia, and in two weeks I was sold. Well, Szilard wasn't sold. He disliked La Valencia. As he told Mel Green, he moved out because living there, he lowered the average age of the residents by ten years. (laughs) (coughs) Szilard found a sunny cottage at the Del Charo Hotel. Which was on Torrey Pines Road by La Jolla Parkway. The Del Charo was owned by a Texas oil man named Clint Murchison, who also bought the Del Mar Racetrack because he liked horse racing. Murchison hosted FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover for many summers, and he, he and Hoover and, and his pals came out to play the horses. Other guests included the movie stars Clark Gable and Elizabeth Taylor, Chicago gangsters, Vice President Richard Nixon, and the singer Kate Smith. Also at the Del Charo, you could find scientists visiting general atomics, including Hans Bethe and Edward Teller. What a place for Leo to have spent his final days. At the Salk Institute, Szilard began a seminal paper on memory and recall and began planning with Salk an ambitious study of the human brain. Solar told his friends that living here was a foretaste of paradise, and he loved brainstorming with other notable scientists, especially Leslie Orgel, Francis Crick, and Jacob Bronowski. But all this ended too soon. On May 30, 1964, he died in his sleep of a massive heart attack. At a memorial service at the Salk Institute, Jonas Salk said of Szilard, his interest in peace and in problems of disease were all of one piece. As we have said, he was a humanist with a powerful intellect, but he was also a man with a warm heart. The day after he died, the New York Times had his obit on page one and he was recognized as a true pioneer in the nuclear field and in arms control as well. In his eulogy for Solard, Ed Lennox marveled at Solard's heroic and ingenious recovery from cancer. But then he wondered, why had he not been as successful with that heart attack? Lennox could only conclude, God never would have got Leo if he had been awake. after the service Szilard's friends chuckled when they heard about his idea for scattering his ashes put them into brightly colored balloons Szilard instructed Leslie Orgel and release them over the ocean that way at least it will delight all the children thank you
2: Bill will certainly um, answer questions if you have any.
1: Solard was trying to make children happy by releasing his ashes in balloons. Did he try to make everybody happy?
2: No, no, no. It was a sarcastic statement on his part because he did not make everybody happy. You know, he had a hard life
1: socially. Well, I think think he did try to make everybody happy, except when he insulted them. Uh, (laughs) I know uh, he was at a seminar with Einstein in the 20s and Einstein put an equation up, and solard said, you know, that's stupid. And Einstein very meekly looked at it and had to agree. I mean, he he, he could be really pretty crude, but, but he could also be really gentle. He loved reading stories to kids, and he loved uh, making up stories for kids, as well as his science fiction.
3: Hi, I'm Medhi Saram. I'm a nuclear guy. Uh, I've read your book, great book. but. I have a question. The fact that he's a genius ahead of his time, how can a person, you know a lot better, how can a person change diametrically oppose a U-turn, help develop the weapon, push for the chain reaction, the Chicago pile, and two years, three years later, like many others, change his views. Oppenheimer is also my hero. Second question is, Edward Teller to me, he sold himself to me. He's a no-good guy. Fermi is a genius, honorable guy. He was accused of this and that, and it was wrong. Could you put these people at a level who are your heroes besides Leo? And why did he push for something that later he changed his mind within two years. Thank you.
1: Well, Szilard and Einstein both considered themselves pacifists. And when they decided to warn President Roosevelt about German A-bomb work, they did so very reluctantly. And, in fact, after the letter was sent off, Szilard sat down and wrote his own version of the Ten Commandments. That's how profound, I think, The experience was to set in motion something so powerful. But they thought, correctly, that the Germans were ahead of us in the race for the bomb. In 1939, when the fission of uranium was announced, the Germans right away applied their scientists to the army. We didn't do that until June of 1942. There's a strange crossover, and it touches on the question of whether you favor or don't favor something. We were desperately racing the Germans, and that's why Einstein and Solard and others wanted to develop a weapon as a defensive weapon. In June of 1942, finally, the U.S. Army took over the work that Fermi and Solard were doing and created the Manhattan Project. We scaled up at that point, full steam ahead. Ironically, the same month in Berlin, the scientists, among them Heisenberg, went to Speer, the munitions director, and he said, we can't have a weapon before we win the war. There's no point in working on it. Besides, our labs are being bombed. We're going to have to move. So the same month that we scaled up, full steam ahead, the Germans effectively shut down. As to how Solard changed his mind, Both he and Einstein didn't have regrets. They said it was the only rational thing we could do from what we knew about the German efforts. But by the spring of 1945, with Germany defeated, Szilard and others were concerned about the post-war control and about using this awful weapon on, on cities. So I think it's of a piece that he favored using it when it was clearly in need of a defensive weapon, but then opposing it when it would be the first offensive use of nuclear weapons. I think some of my, my other heroes include uh, Richard Feynman. Uh, I think also Andrei Sakharov. And I think uh, Hans Bethe certainly. Was, they all worked on weapons, but with the notion that they'd be defensive. I want to add something else about Sakharov. Szilard wrote a story in 1947 called My Trial as a War Criminal. And he said in this political fable that the Russians win World War III and they invade the United States and they round up all the people who worked on the A-bomb. Oppenheimer and Fermi and Solard, James Burns, Truman. And they're going to try them as war criminals. But then something happens and it, and it, uh, it doesn't happen. Uh, uh, the point was that Solard considered himself a war criminal in one sense. In 1961, that story was published in The Voice of the Dolphins and Other Stories, which Leo Szilard published in the United States. Victor Adamski, who was Sakharov's right-hand man, translated that story and showed it to Sakharov. And Adamsky said it changed Sakharov's mind about his responsibilities with nuclear arms control And he remembered it for the rest of his life as being a turning point. Richard Rhodes describes this in his
0: book *Dark Sun*. Next question, Uh, Bill. the The Hungarian, the uh, Ukrainian crisis that we are now facing in uh, 1990 and 91 at the breakup of the Soviet Union. that that began a deal that was worked out between the United States and Russia with respect to the transfer of uh, Ukrainian nuclear weapons, which at that point was the third largest assemblage of nuclear weapons in the world. The Ukraine had over 5,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, ICBMs, 1,800 ICBMs with nuclear weapons at the, uh, on the warhead, all left over from the Soviet Union. Uh, could you comment as to what would be the consequences today as a result of that deal worked out between the United States, Russia? We pay the Ukraine cheap price, half a million dollars for the Ukraine to destroy all of their nuclear weapons by giving it to Soviets and who destroyed it under supervision, all of their their missiles, all of their offensive power, and became a non-nuclear power. Can you imagine today what would be the crisis like in Ukraine if that deal had not been worked out and and that kind of cooperation had not existed uh, in the 90s? And could you also tell us, when did you start your research on on, uh, on him and and what inspired you to keep that up for so many years?
1: I'll, I'll deal with the Ukraine first uh, because ever since I wrote the book, I've, I've heard from Leo's friends, well, what would Leo think? And what would Leo think <coughs> about the Ukraine? Um, I think uh, he would probably apply the principle that he spelled out in his fable, The Voice of the Dolphins, where uh, super humanly bright dolphins are taught language by a U.S.-Soviet think tank in Vienna, and when the dolphins come up with new concepts, the think tank keeps winning Nobel Prizes and stashes up a lot of money. Uh, then, this, is, this was written in 1960, by the way, but he, he correctly predicted in the 80s when the arms race with the Soviets would at least formally end. Um, And so um, then they had a radio show called The Voice of the Dolphins where worldwide they would broadcast the best advice, of course Szilard's advice, uh, as to how to make this a more peaceful world. But the real secret in The Voice of the Dolphins was that with all this money, they would just bribe officials to do the right thing. So I suspect today that Szilard would just bribe Putin to <laughs> stop messing around. As far as, uh, as Szilard's involvement in my life and my family's life, I started looking at him in 1982 when I did an article for the Atlantic Monthly about the nuclear breeder reactor, which was going to be built in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I traced the chain reaction and the breeder reaction. I found they both came from this guy, Leo Szilard, who I had only known as an arms control activist. So I wrote him into the story, and then I discovered there really was no biography. And then I discovered his brother Bela, who agreed to help me. And then I discovered his papers here. And so it was irresistible. as somebody who writes about atomic energy and arms control, to have this dropped in my lap, I just could not resist. And so since Eighty-two. I started a book proposal and I worked uh, six years part-time and two years full-time and the first edition came out in 1992.
3: Yes, sir. Thanks for the great lecture. I'm Sun Che, a professor at the Salk Institute. I'm grateful for Zillard's influence in shaping the Salk Institute to what it is today. My question is very simple. Did uh, German uh, Army or U.S. Army have to uh, have a license from uh, Columbia I'm University. Sorry, can you speak up? Did they? Did they have to uh, obtain the license from Columbia University for the use of chain reaction? A license? Yeah. Because of a patent. Patent. Patent is probably uh, well, filed the patent,
1: by Columbia. patent patent. solar annoyed people by filing patents in the first place, but he he thought it was essential that that uh, people give, be given credit for what they do. He had 30 joint patents with, with, um, with Einstein for that refrigerator, for example. Uh, as far as the chain reaction patent, during the war, he wanted to be compensated. He was going to sign it over to the army. But he wanted to be compensated for all the work he had done in the 10 years before. And he bickered with General Groves back and forth. And Groves had him thrown off the project for a while. He assigned a lawyer to represent him. Finally, he agreed for the cost of his expenses that the patent would go to the uh, U.S. government. The patent for the first nuclear reactor, which was designed by Fermi and Szilard, was issued in 1955, the year after uh, Fermi died, to both Fermi and Szilard. But the uh, the control of the patent was always Szilard's until he signed it over to the Army in 1944.
3: I'm wondering if my, if my understanding of Zalard is correct. I, in my book, A Great Deal, there are people who have a
1: constitutional disinclination for doubt. Um, Teller Zelard, sometime friend is one. Einstein, excuse me, Oppenheimer has a constitutional
3: inclination for doubt as he wavered on Hiroshima his whole life, back and forth, depending on what day it was. Szilard also has a constitutional disinclination to doubt. Am I
1: correct on this? A disinclination? Disinclination to doubt. He holds things firmly, dogmatically, and he doesn't question himself. The question is whether, like some scientists... uh, Some people. uh, Some scientists and some people... Uh, did did Szilard have a have a have a sense of doubt? I think he he was constantly doubting conventional wisdom. He was constantly doubting the assumptions that people were making, and he had a contrarian point when he heard when he heard Rutherford announce this Nobel laureate announce, "You can't get." useful energy from the atom, Szilard figured out a way to do it. So he was, always, he was always contrary in that sense of saying, well, if somebody says it's true, it probably isn't. But does he doubt himself rather than conventional wisdom? I think he did doubt. I mean, he, he was into so many things, often as a novice. He and Einstein had lateral thinking and talked about all sorts of, of different things. Uh, I think they doubted their own knowledge until they could rationally describe it and Szilard, uh I think struggled and even used fiction and other things to try to bring something to fruition that he might then believe in but I think he did i think he he never he never doubted his own rational powers, but I think he often doubted whether in fact they were true and whether they were in fact effective. Thank you.
2: Thank you. We thank our speaker once again. Thank you. Thank you. That was just great. Thanks. Thank you very much.